0: You're listening to Mesearch, a podcast featuring Filipino perspectives.
1: In this show, we talk to trailblazers, business leaders, and bosses in the community to find out more about what they do.
0: Join us as we learn and get to the bottom of things. Stay tuned. Hey, Dustin. Hey, Crystal. Hey, everybody.
1: Rock your
0: body. You know
1: what I realized? I realized that in another episode, I did the Backstreet Boys thing, and I tried to make it a little different, so I sang (laughs) off-key.
0: Oh my gosh, I felt that. It didn't feel right in my soul. Not just because it's Backstreet Boys, but just because it was the wrong note. No hate to Backstreet Boys, (laughs) because NSYNC and and BSB have come together- and mm-hmm. everything is good. I think we're probably going to talk about this in another episode because I feel like this is deja vu now. Yeah, we've talked about Backstreet
1: Boys in another episode, but it's totally fine because they're back.
0: They're back. If you didn't, they're know. back.
1: They're back. Backstreet's everyone.
0: back. All right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, so yeah. Uh, question for you, Boo. Yes. Um, been thinking about school lately. As a teacher. (laughs) Um, But my question for you is, did you feel seen in school in all the ways that you identify?
1: Mm, Great question. So, um, I guess I'll preface with my pronouns are he, him, his. Uh, I'm a Filipino American, and I identify as a gay man. So, in all of those ways, I guess... The simple answer is no. Mm. Um, like of course I have had male teachers growing up, um, or men as teachers growing up, but um as far as like Filipinos, I did have a fifth grade teacher named Mrs. Van. Um I don't know where she is these days, but I wrote a a dedication to her in my dissertation because she was that important to me. Oh. Um Because I had not had another Filipino teacher until college. So she was the first one that spoke to like life as a Filipino. Um, and also probably my first Asian teacher just in general. Um, and that was really cool because, you know, growing up in educational systems, we are bombarded with messages of, you have to align yourself with white culture Mm -hmm. or heterosexual culture. And it was cool having an adult figure, an authority figure um, kind of not fit that mold in that way because it gave me permission to be something other than heterosexual white. And I'm not those things. So in that way I felt a little bit seen and that was
0: really cool. What about you? Um, no. <laughs> um, no, I did not feel seen in the way that I identify. Um,
1: okay, I'll clarify with my answer. Like, okay, there was definitely not enough representation. And if I did feel okay, I think no, like going into what you're about to say, uh, mm-hmm. or like predicting about predicting what you're about to say i I feel like i want to like clarify my answer a little bit more um because it while it was nice having like asian teachers like i definitely don't feel like there was enough of them and also i definitely didn't have permission to be um free to present myself in the way that i do as an adult in terms of my sexuality um growing up as a kid or growing up Mm -hmm. as a emerging adult in high school and whatnot. So I will end with that um just because I feel like the appropriate answer would have been like, uh not really, but to call out Mrs. Van, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. But uh yes, that was what I wanted to clarify. Go ahead. Sorry about that.
0: No, no, no. Shout out to Mrs. Van. Yeah. Shout out. Um no I didn't feel seen. Um I remember like I don't know if it was like fourth grade on uh, mm-hmm. social studies where maybe there was like one line about the the Philippine war or something. Something Filipino. Literally like a sentence or two. And just mm. getting excited about two sentences in a book. Uh. Which is... Uh, no. <laughs> no. Um, but... You know, I I went to Catholic school, and so there were a lot of um, Filipinos at school. So, like, being around my peers, I felt seen in, in a way, but, like, within, like, the curriculum, within, um, like, having teachers kind of understand, like, our culture and kind of coming, meeting me where I am. I never mm-hmm. felt that ever. Mm. If anything, it was like you know, I, in kindergarten. If you listen to our first episode, they put me in ESL um, mm. just because I had an accent, um, and I was the only kindergartner who was able to read. So mm. that's silly, um, but no, I, I haven't really. Fe- I I never really felt seen in school. Um, I think in college, I did have a Filipino teacher and she mm-hmm. taught, um, ethnic studies. And that was exciting. Mm. Like, whoa, I've never, ever seen a Filipina woman in an educational setting. So that was like my first time where I felt some kind of connection to my education. Um, mm-hmm. and it took many moons for that to happen. Yeah.
1: I also had just one Filipino teacher in college. Um, I like what you said about, not that I liked it, but it resonated with me that there was like one or two lines in a book and you're like, Oh, I'm going to celebrate that. I think that's, that is similar to how my mindset my mindset initially was like, oh yeah, it was great. I had one teacher, but bro, that's like one teacher, one teacher
0: in your entire,
1: in, in my entire like school. educational career. And I went yeah. to school for a long time. Y'all too long. <laughs> <laughs> I feel, you. but um, yeah, we need more, no, we need more representation in education systems, whether that be, uh, teachers, the content that, that is being taught, um, culture that's being celebrated in the classrooms and the person that we have on the show (gasps) in this episode can speak to that and we're really excited uh to have you all listen to his story his name is godfrey santos plata and we're gonna go ahead and get started with this episode
0: all right let's go
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome oh, to Me Search. Oh, no. hey. hey, we are talking with educator and community advocate Godfrey Santos Plata. Welcome. We're so happy to have you here, Godfrey. <famoso> yes. Yeah. So yeah.
2: by-
1: of course. So, uh, thank you so much for taking time to be with us. Uh, you have been a public school teacher and you've worked your entire career to advance equity and justice in education systems. Can you talk to us a little bit about your background and how you found yourself in a position to be so dedicated to fighting for underrepresented communities?
2: Yeah um, I mean, it all started in the Philippines. I was born in Marikina, um, which for folks who um, don't know Filipino geography too well, it is um, the shoe capital of the Philippines just east of Manila. Um, and uh, in 1988, my family decided to come to the United States and we landed here in the Los Angeles area in the South Bay. Um, So immediately, you know, I was consuming American media and I remember being four and five years old. And I remember wanting to change my name um, already because the names of the white people on TV who were cool Mm -hmm. did not reflect the names or coolness of of my perception of who I was. I, I realized um, I realized later that um, I'm queer and I, um, at the age of four and five, began to consume all sorts of socialized messages um, about what it means to be um, straight and cool. Like, that's how you get your coolness. You're heterosexual. You go, you're mm-hmm. in high school and you date girls. That's what you do on TV shows. Um And so in kindergarten, as early as that, I began to ask girls out on dates, even though that has like no bearing at all on (laughs) on who I am today and what my identity is. And to me, I start with those stories because as I think about being Filipino, a queer man, a person of color in the United States, um, we are inculcated into everything that white supremacy and colonialism wants us to believe from jump. Um, Mm -hmm. I didn't have to I didn't have to go a year in the United States before I was internalizing those messages and wanting to incorporate them into my life. Um, So throughout my life, I've had the opportunities to sort of like um, identify those tensions in in um, in who I am, um, what I need to be able to find some sort of liberation for myself based on those identities, but what the world provides me. Um, in Mm -hmm. terms of opportunity. I remember going to college at the University of Richmond in um, Virginia, which is predominantly white, predominantly affluent. It's a private university that I got a scholarship to. And it was there that I began to realize that white folks out there, and probably more than just white folks, still use the term colored people to describe um, folks of color in particular, black people in the United States. Um, And they felt safe telling me that as a Filipino person um, and I didn't think that was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, that highlighted this unique role that being Filipino has given me um, in the United States to be able to fight not just for our community as one that is underrepresented um, politically, socioeconomically, et cetera, but for all communities of color, frankly, and working class communities. Um, I think there's a lot of solidarity that can we can build alongside each other with. And I noticed that because people have seen me as kind of like this bridge character between lots of different communities. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. people don't know what to do with Asian folks. They don't know if we're people of color or white. And I think because I have the analysis that I have, I choose to fight um, for the rights of communities of color. Um, so that that's a little bit about my background and and why I choose to lead with the mission that I lead with.
1: That's so interesting. Yeah. If, I, if I can ask a follow-up question. Yeah. You talked a little bit about when you first came to California, and then immediately you were bombarded with messages and socializations of, you need to be basically adopt... Straight white man. White. Yeah, yeah basically. <laughs> yeah, essentially. Not basically, that's what it is, right? And then you you eventually found your way to Richmond, Virginia, and participated in an education system that was predominantly white, um, and then... Somehow down the road, you realized, okay, let me unlearn some things and decolonize the mind, so to speak. Right. So how how did that happen for you? Like, what was the catalyst for you to flip the flip the switch in your in your brain um, to acknowledge that, hey, like the world is very colonized. The systems that are in place are like telling me I need to align with uh, straight white culture. Mm -hmm. This is not right. Is there any specific catalyst moment or like book or something that you've consumed that made you think a little bit outside of the box or out of the norm?
2: I don't know that I can pinpoint one particular um, moment that led me to the commitment of decolonization. As I understand decolonization now, I think there Mm -hmm. were like moments of the onion peeling Mm. um, until I get closer to the core of the onion. The very the very first moment that I can remember, aside from like that media stuff that I just told you about, like seeing media representation pushing me to be a straight white man, like I didn't question it at the time. Mm -hmm. Right. But the very first moment I began to realize that there was some tension between how I was being socialized into the world And what I could possibly believe in about the world was in the second grade, which is still really early. It was 1992. I was here in Los Angeles. And for those of you who are in L.A. in 1992, you know, we had some uprisings Mm -hmm. in April of that year in response to the acquittal of four police officers who beat a black man in one of um, the earlier early 90s um, uses of video footage to capture police brutality on um, on tape. And. I, rem- I at the time was going into an elementary school. I-, I was at an elementary school as a student in the second grade that was predominantly black. Um, mm-hmm. The student population and teacher population, parent population, clearly predominantly black. And I was one of the 3% students who identified as other, other <laughs> Filipino was one of those. And um, I remember during the uprisings, um, going home and going home to my Filipino parents and household and hearing coded messages um, that are, you know, are not surprising to come from any parents of, of any background coded messages um, around like, be careful who you hang around. Not everybody's a good person, but I but I'm using the word coded because I knew what my parents were really saying and they were really talking about black people based mm-hmm. on messages they had internalized from the media and their experiences, both in the Philippines and here. Anti blackness is a worldwide phenomenon. It's not unique to the mm-hmm. United States. And um, I remember in the second grade thinking, like, that doesn't make sense to me. I didn't say that to them, but I re- I had been at a elementary school for two years already. Again, that was predominantly Black, and I loved school. I loved my classmates. I loved the parent volunteers that I engaged with because of the um, Afrocentric nature of the school. I had learned already a little bit about civil rights history. And the fact that like when you rock the boat, it's for a reason, mm. and that actually amounts to change in the United States. And so I knew from the second grade that I had to navigate through the world with some level of skepticism, even from those who love me the most. Um, and I had to come up with my own conclusions based on what I was studying, based on the experiences I had with lots of different people and communities. And I think going to University of Richmond, which again was predominantly white and affluent, only served to reinforce that even more. Like It was like, You know, I I saw white supremacy play out more overtly than I did in Los Angeles when I grew up Mm -hmm. in communities of color. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that really pushed me to then, frankly, uh, you know, my first job out of college was to um, work in public education and become a middle school teacher, because my theory was that, wow, like things were happening to me while I was young to shape the world that I would then navigate for myself and 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 for society, if I were to make a contribution to society, we need to start people young in being able to unravel the ways in which history is taught and mistaught to us. And I think that, you know, like the the praxis of that, like the commitment I had to supporting others to do that, I think is the process of decolonizing. Like you can't decolonize like in a moment, a light bulb goes off while you're reading a book. You're decolonizing in the process of trying to do something different and realizing what the consequences are, for better or worse, to you or the people around you.
0: Wow. Yeah, the education system is is so important to how we navigate the world, but as, as you mentioned, you know, it's definitely not perfect. Um, so what do you think are some Things that are going right in the education system right now, and maybe what are some things that need to still evolve?
2: Uh, in like a few minutes, <laughs> <laughs> <We> <laughs> people write yes. dissertations on. That. Yeah, um, <laughs> I I'm so glad that we have a public education system that aims to serve as many kids as possible. Um, even if that system is not going well in, in many different communities, I'm glad we're at least committed at this point in the nation's history to maintain some level of public education system. That's not true. Um, Mm -hmm. in many other countries, I used to date somebody, um, who, where he and his family grew up, you know, like so many folks dropped out with like a sixth grade level education because it just meant a different level of commitment for your family, financially, economically, otherwise, mm-hmm. for for kids to go off um, after fifth or sixth, or to, to, to go off to school after fifth or sixth grade. And we have a system, at least here in the United States, that hopes to be committed to a good number of years of your early life, supporting you to become, um, a strong adult, um, theoretically, uh, in, in the country. So I, I think that is something fundamentally right. Um, but what we do, I think there is the opportunity in the education system for kids to get an excellent education when they have amazing adults who have strong values, analysis of the world um, and understanding of history and science and um, and, and many beliefs Um, that are core to being able to navigate the world's challenges like individual adults can have major impact on Mm -hmm. kids Mm. and on schools as school leaders. So I think, you know, our our education system leaves room for that. Um, You might hear that I'm being like very broad and vague about like what's going well, because it is actually easy for me to think about um, some of the ways we need to evolve um, our education system. It's like really honestly what I'm asking myself is like, where do I begin? Um, mm-hmm. What are the core roots of the problem? And I think, you know, one of, one of the fundamental core roots of the problem, and this is maybe philosophical and, and harder to solve for, is our education system serves to continue the nation's project, which is currently one that maintains colonialism, one that maintains white supremacy, one that maintains capitalism. And we know enough at this point to, um, to know the wrath of those things, the dangers of those things, the consequences of those things literally our school system is set up to graduate folks to be able to navigate um, those systems, which doesn't necessarily support students to resist those systems. Mm-hmm. We're setting up people to survive, to find jobs, etc., which are going to maintain those systems. Um, and survival is important. Clearly, we want students and all families and communities to be able to make their way through the world. And at the same time, I think it's incredibly important that we develop the critical thinking and analysis capacities to be able to also evolve the world. Um, The problem is we don't evolve schools as quickly as maybe we're evolving the world as adults, right? Like there's Mm -hmm. like this cycle where school has to change and respond to the changing world. And sometimes our forms of schooling are archaic and we want to maintain the same things that everyone has always gone through in school. School is school is school. Right. Like everyone feels like every adult feels like they have an opinion about school because they went through it themselves mm-hmm. without questioning how school ought to change based on how we are changing our views of the world. For example, um, I think about the fact that um, uh, in the pandemic, for example, um, we were still trying to make this Zoom world of school <clears throat> happen on, an, on a school schedule that was intended to support like agricultural work. Like Mm -hmm. that's why we've got work schedules and school schedules on this like you know eight to five whatever we're following the sun (laughs) in the same way to enable people to do labor so like literally when people are like not doing that why do we maintain like the same systems of how we do school Mm -hmm. and and then like not even like asking that fundamental question when we're in school buildings but then when we have the creativity space to reimagine what school could be because we can't do school the same way, we still try to fit it into that hole. Like that's, that's where the education system is right now. We're so, um, we are so uh, committed to perpetuating some models of schooling that it is extremely hard to be able to create proof points of mm-hmm. what a reimagined type of education could be mm-hmm. um, in, in the civil rights movement for example when we look at the south um we saw that many uh black folks as well as um their allies who are not black created freedom school opportunities um that had to be separate from the schools that were codified um by uh by you know public education systems we had to create freedom schools other sorry not we because i wasn't there but like people had to create freedom schools Um, to be able to create the curricula and um, the analysis to be able to reimagine the world beyond how school was helping you reimagine it in and of itself. So those are just some, like, openings, I suppose, to some of the ways we um, might need to evolve our understanding of what public education can be without letting go of our commitment to public education. Like, I want to be very clear that, like, Everyone deserves the right to be able to access an excellent education responsive to their communities, to their needs, to our world right now, and one that also helps them to evolve the world um, but when we got there. Um, yeah
1: that's amazing. I feel like there's so many follow up <laughs> questions that I want to ask you right now. I guess one question that I have that comes to mind is with this worldwide event, of COVID kind of disrupting things. Did you happen to see anything that came from that that you're like, wow, I'm pleasantly surprised we are moving in the right direction?
2: I mean, it's. I think um, this is like a different way of answering your question, but I mm-hmm. think the pandemic really laid bare the inequities mm. that mm. our students and families face when they are especially districted to schools in low income communities and communities of color. Mm-hmm. Right. What we saw was uh, schools um, that were that serve predominantly low income um, students, communities of color, had a tougher time getting access to information about COVID, mm-hmm. healthcare, like even like the free like the free testing and vaccines were a lot harder to come by. And even when they were there to come by, we saw wealthier folks, white folks come from other locations in Los Angeles to come get in line and, and like, begin to take some of those spots. Um, right. we, we saw technology being harder to help school continue. And so we saw like more higher percentages of students becoming absent for any sort of schooling. Um, not only because they didn't have access to be able to continue school in an environment where there was no broadband or were apartment units, were not set up to be able to carry on Wi-Fi in, in the capacity that it needed to at this time of, of remote work and learning. Um, but, you know, when when low-income um, communities of color who are dependent on getting their wages from jobs that depend on being open in usual interpersonal life, like restaurants, etc. that meant that students also had to support their families in different ways, like the pressures of our public education system on low income students and communities of color are not because they are intrinsically low income, like communities of color. We've created these conditions. And Mm -hmm. I think COVID has really helped us to be able to point to the problems in different ways, such that we can now, I think, be louder with the theory that like fixing our schools, i.e. like just what's within a school's gates is not enough of a solution we put so much pressure on schools right now to um to have nurses and counselors which they should right Mm -hmm. like we should have clinics on schools we should have great food at schools etc and part of the reason we need schools to do that in particular in low income communities of color is because the communities outside of schools lack those things as well like lack mm. access to food security, lack access to health clinics at the community level, lack access to healthcare um, at a basic level. So I, th- I think that COVID has really shown a light on there and maybe activated certain folks to be able to um, act on those things quicker. And we saw that in the initial part of the um, of of the pandemic when public officials started to imagine some really radical possibilities like even thinking mm-hmm. about like f- housing folks who are unhoused in hotels it, like why don't we do that on the regular why did it take a pandemic for us to be this like imaginary like to, to be this kind of imagineer for our mm-hmm. world mm-hmm. um i think that is a un um it's not the way we wanted to receive that gift but it's yeah. a gift that we can do something with now
1: right It's great to hear that people are taking action because the disparities are just glaringly obvious at this point. Let's talk a little bit about the steps that education systems and like teacher preparation programs are doing. What are your thoughts on preparing teachers to be better advocates for Mm -hmm. communities that need the help and support?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And I think sometimes when people think of... I, I would say most people don't even think about teacher preparation. People forget that teachers mm-hmm. need teachers. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like you know, you don't kind of just step into the classroom and begin like espousing knowledge <laughs> like in, <laughs> into the world. Like that's not how teaching works. Like um, there's like pedagogy that you learn, you know, in 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 colleges of um, colleges of education, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, and. Like because the world evolves and because teachers don't often know the communities where they end up getting placed because LA Unified is a giant district, for example, and you may end up working at a school 45 minutes away from where you live. Like there's ongoing development as we think about teacher preparation that teachers need to be able to um, ensure that they are merging their desire to support students with excellent pedagogy, i.e. like the things that will help you learn and retain and apply academic knowledge and skills with an analysis, a critical analysis of the world, because like, like right now, when we talk about student performance and teacher performance, um, being measured at a school level, we're often talking about like these like end of school year tests that only are about like math and reading, etc. But there's like other things being learned at school. Like how do I believe Filipino people are, okay. how do I believe it means to be a man? How do I believe, um, our people interact with this group of people, right? Like all of these things are things that are being learned all the time, especially when we're not on Zoom and in interpersonal space, but I think still, still very true on Zoom. We're still learning about each other. And I think teacher preparation, um, work that needs to be done is taking that into account. Like that aspect that is never going to be measured by tests, cannot be measured by tests. Um, mm-hmm. That we don't want to be measured by tests like I don't want you to come away with like an ABC right answer about Filipino people <laughs> Plus, mm-hmm. super limiting and what like that's not that doesn't jive with what we believe about ethnicity and culture and race um, as well, um, but it is important that like a teacher can recognize anti Asian harassment when they see it right mm-hmm. and right mm-hmm. now like using that as an example. Um, you know, like at the beginning of the pandemic, we st- we began to see a rise in anti-Asian violence. Um, that was like March 2020, mm-hmm. and what we know as Asian people is that anti-Asian violence has always been a thing. It's just been mm-hmm. like shoved under the rug because of the model minority myth, erasure, um, and 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 the intricacies of of race in America that keeps things in a black-white binary. Um, mm-hmm. Why I bring up this example of anti-Asian violence as something that teachers ought to need development in is I am part of a a group of folks here in LA who have had to organize literally for the last year and a half, and even before that we were organizing to bring to the attention of LA Unified that we should probably do some sort of training with teachers and staff about what anti-Asian violence looks like um, and, and how it has come to be because there are too many people in the world who, um, who don't believe that Asian people are people of color, that don't believe that we are impacted by oppression. Like we actually have to teach people that. That's teacher preparation, right? Mm-hmm. Like that doesn't have to do with the skill of how do I support a student to be able to understand how to multiply, what does good practice look like? What does good evaluation look like? What does good remediation look like? That's pedagogy. That's what most mm-hmm. people think teaching is. That's what most college of education, uh, colleges of education do. Mm-hmm. But what we need is this, like, social political awareness, um, mm. as, as part of teacher preparation. And, and, and I think that's what I am excited about. That's why I do that kind of work. That's why I support teachers who are, um, interested in engaging with their communities beyond the classroom, because that's where that awareness building happens. And that's where their decolonization works. Um happens when they try to do things in community with their students and families, um, that's like that's its own form, kind of like of teacher education um, mm-hmm. at the same time that you're not going to get from a college of education from a book or a lecture course.
0: Can you see any shifts in programming for for teachers uh, for teacher programs um, currently? I, I mean, I think, um, it depends
2: where you are. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. because as we know, we're in a, um, really politically divided, um, nation where we think about critical race theory, um, mm. very differently depending on who leads your state, et cetera. So I think it depends where you are. I, I, um, in Los Angeles, which I can speak to because I, I live here, um, you know, over the last couple of years, you can't be an Angelino without, um, without having participated in some sort of way without a conversation about police accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular its effect on, on on Black people and Black communities. And the fact that like where we are right now with continued anti-Blackness in our structures of policing has been a centuries old thing that we are just frankly beginning to unravel as a society. Um, and why I'm mentioning that particular example right now is we are seeing um, Districts like LA Unified School District, which is the second largest school district in the nation, have to exist within that context where our students and their parents and our teachers, like, have to come to some sort of understanding about anti-blackness mm. and this phrase Black Lives Matter,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: um, and what that means when you're not black, um, and there is some um, some work um, and maybe if if things happen well, some investment in time and money that I know LA Unified is interested in to bring more of those types of conversations um, to schools and to teachers. Um, and I think those of us who have benefited from critical race theory and ethnic studies in California have always been a strong, um, a strong rallying group um, in trying to ensure that more and more students have access to those things, even as a requirement at the community college level, at the high school level, et cetera, um, because right now the requirement is that you get the type of history that is likely to center white dominant culture um, and, and white supremacy, and it is going to take a lot of um, restructuring um, to be able to make room for the narratives that we know have been erased all this time. So there's there's moves being made. We're not there. It's if it, this is work, this is policy change, mm. um, this is organizing. That's the kind of stuff that I'm really interested in um, Mm -hmm. that has to start with a conversation, perhaps in a teacher preparation space, Mm -hmm. but ultimately is out in community and is in the space of actually changing laws. Mm.
1: So well said, Um, because you brought up the topic of critical race theory. Mm -hmm. um, And that in itself has been such a huge divisive conversation. Um, And perhaps this is a silly question, But can you state again, what are your thoughts or positions on teaching critical race theory in K through 12 systems?
2: I'm in support, like, starting from the time you are born, like the time, Mm -hmm. like, you know, like the stories I shared earlier about Mm -hmm. me being a four year old and a five year old in the United States and internalizing messages that were detrimental to my love of being Filipino or being a person of color. Like mm-hmm. that starts young. And I think critical race theory just acknowledges and shines a light on the fact that like um, that people who are of different races because we've had to grow grow up with a social construct of, of um, being racialized in the United States. We do experience our race and our identity in different um, in different amounts of power, whether we are feeling disempowered, whether we are literally oppressed. Um, because of our race, that knowledge of how we exist in the world starts young. So I am very in favor of making sure that we are ensuring that folks have an understanding of um of racism from an early age, not just interpersonal racism, um, and not just repre- uh, not just racism as it exists through lack of representation mm-hmm. or overrepresentation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think racism as it exists in laws, laws like the ones that do not require, that anyone in many states of the nation study race, period, uh, mm-hmm. in, in in schools.
0: <sighs> Great, thank oh, you. Boy, thank you. All right, y'all, we're going to take a quick little break and we will be back with Godfrey. hey, hey. Hey, hey,
1: hey. hey. Okay, we're back. We're back. Thank you. <laughs> we're here with Godfrey Santos Plata Uh, educator and community advocate. Uh, So, Godfrey, based on all of what we've talked about today with regards to education systems, uh, complicated conversations surrounding race in in our communities, um, doing what we can as as teacher education programs and as community members, what are a few tips or actions you would like our audience to take um, to kind of advance the cause of supporting educational equity?
2: Um, I mean, you know, I've described educational inequity as, um, uh, as really being overarching of all of the ways in which students experience inequity in their lives, because everything that happens to them outside of school, also they bring into school and then all of a sudden mm-hmm. school's got to deal with it, um, cetera, and it impacts their ability to learn. Um, so I, I think a number one thing that people can do in order to, um, address inequities like like the ones our students experience is to join an organization that is building um, community and power and accountability to act together right like when we're not involved in any sort of organization that is committed to actually um, acting against injustice we are much freer to be complicit in it Mm -hmm. um, because we don't have to answer to anyone i feel the freedom of, of not Knowing what I can do, not knowing any other people who are doing things about it. But when you join an organization, you begin to recreate a community for yourself that commits you to acting against injustice. So join an organization. And there are many out there um, right now um, um, that are organizing in Los Angeles. Um, uh, depending on you are, it's a giant place. So I just will not even plug any <laughs> right now. Um, uh, I think a second thing is um, you know for for folks who are um, interested in um, educational inequity, like your opportunity to impact um, educational inequity and and fight for more equity in the world is not just at a school board level. Mm-hmm. Like lots of people think education, school board. Like let me like make sure that I'm paying attention to those races. Right. Like our school boards and school districts get their money from state legislatures and and like and the state. So like we need to be paying attention at a different level of mm. governance if we're trying to reimagine what schooling can look like and the investments we're making in public education. Right. Like when we think about the type of curriculum that we're able to put in place in schools, sure, districts can make those decisions. But often decisions around ethnic studies and the openings around that are at the state level. Um, so I, I would really, like, push folks to um, expand their awareness of how lots of different positions of power can actually um, make public education a stronger thing for, um, for all students, especially low-income students and, and students of color. Um, uh, the last thing, and I'll, I'll put in a plug out there for someone who I think, like, really embodies a, a lot of these things. Um, there's a former teacher um, who used to teach in Watts. Um, who is uh, running for office right now as she would be the first South Asian, first Muslim legislator um, woman that, that we've ever had in the state of California. And it's 150, 140 or 150 years of having any sort of state governance. Mm. Um, and um, uh, she's taken her experiences working in Watts in South L.A. And she understands all the things that we've talked about on this call, about the fact that educational inequity is a sum of all of the different inequities in our world, including environment, including housing, um, including jobs and scarcity of jobs, et cetera, and wages. Um, her name is uh, Fatima Iqbal Zubair, uh, FatimaForAssembly.com. You can go and check her out. Um, and um, she's an example of, I think, what can happen when teachers continue their education um, in their experiences with their students and their communities. Because she's taken her dedication to her students in school Now to even a broader level, not even running for school board. She's running for our state legislature um, because of the theory that I've just shared with you all. So Mm -hmm. those are three things that I'd pass on.
0: So if people want to uh, learn more about you and your work, Godfrey, where can we find you?
2: Yeah, um, I've got social media handles. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Godfrey Plata. That's G-O-D-F-R-E-Y-P-L-A-T-A. Um, and then, I, you know, if you go to the bio, you'll see a link to, you know, what's called a link tree. And then you'll you'll get linked to all sorts of places I've um, written blogs for and, and other things that I'm up to. So um, just find me on Instagram and Twitter at Godfrey Plata.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much again, y'all. Uh, we're so grateful that you were able to join us and share your knowledge, your experience, um, some tangible action items that we can all do, y'all. We can all do them. Um, yeah, y'all, this was Godfrey Santos Plata. Woo! Yay!
1: All right, everybody. We just had an amazing conversation with Godfrey Santos Plata, an educator and community advocate. Um, amazing amazing person to have on the show because we had some really deep conversations and i'm hoping that we can have him on another episode because definitely a lot to unpack Mm. but there were definitely some things that we discussed in today's episode that resonated with me uh what about you crystal like what is one takeaway that you're bringing home with you from this conversation we had with godfrey
0: um you know at the beginning of this episode we talked about like um representation, right? But um, at the core of it all is the structure of how we are receiving our education, right? And so teachers have to go through a teacher preparation program so that they can do what they do in the classroom. But my takeaway from our conversation with Godfrey is that we have to do so much more than have our teachers learn how to teach subjects because school is so much more than just, um, learning math, Ugh, by the way, because I hate math, but you know, um, it's, it's more about learning math and, and, and history and all the subjects that we learn in school. Um, also the way that we learn, um, mm-hmm. is, is something I'd like to, to, unpack and, and, and talk about some other time. But um, aside from learning how to teach these subjects, teachers are with students all the time, especially in elementary school and high school. And so there has to be an understanding of how we are molding our children and understanding where they're coming from right and so we have to like integrate a social political awareness into these preparation programs Mm -hmm. because they're coming in with very specific experiences and um Knowledge from the outside world because they're, they're learning more than just what's in the classroom. They're experiencing life and, um, how they relate to the world and how the world relates to them. So teachers need to learn how to, um, bring that kind of awareness into the lessons. And that can't happen unless teachers are learning how to do that. Um, And that's clearly not really into that's clearly not in the curriculum at these teacher preparation programs. I was in a teacher preparation program for like a quick second before I pursued um, music and acting and y'all, they did not teach us that. So, um, yeah. What about you, Boo?
1: There were a lot of Really good nuggets of information that that Godfrey shared with us. One thing that really sticks with me is this idea that education systems, like you said, is like, that's like the root of it all. It's the mm-hmm. system. And education systems perpetuate the way that we live our lives. Right. So... If we are to have sweeping change that dismantles these like inequities that communities of color are facing, we really need to challenge the way that education systems are interacting with everything else in our daily life. And one thing he said was that education systems are set up to maintain white supremacy, mm. uh, colonial mindset. Because that's how the structure was set up to begin with. So we need to really challenge ourselves as community members, as people who want to do good things in the world. We need to challenge ourselves to reimagine the way that we're developing young minds.
0: Yeah. And
1: one way to do that is, is to think broader than just the system itself. Like, look at other systems of power that impact the way school sites actually structure the the way that education is delivered. So mm. he talked about state legislature. Like a lot of times people are are thinking to themselves, how do I get involved? And they stop at school board level. Well, mm. you know, it's possible to go above that because school boards and the way that school districts operate is that, they are, in a way, like beholden to state legislature and laws. So we need to like get involved, change laws, like spread awareness, educate ourselves about uh, what it is our students are learning, and maybe think about challenge the way that we think about how or what uh, students are doing in the classroom or outside of the classroom or the way that um, the the classroom is set up to actually be more in line with how we want an ideal society to look
0: Mm Hmm. yes
1: yeah uh of course definitely more to be said um and we're hoping that godfrey will agree to to hanging out with us um maybe as friends but also like in a second episode because we want to talk more about this stuff yeah uh any final words boo
0: um. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, just for the recording, we are recording this also through IG Live, and so if you weren't here for the IG Live, you missed out on some fun things. <laughs> <laughs> That's my final thought.
1: So, if you're listening to this episode, follow us at MeSearch Podcast. Follow us all, everybody. Follow us all. Follow us Learn all. Learn something. Get involved. And uh, Eat vegetables
0: yeah. with us. That's what we're doing.
1: Yeah, eat vegetables. We're going to be healthy today. Um, <laughs> I think that's the end of the episode then. Yeah. Yay. Yay. Okay. okay. Cool. All right. Yay! Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Mesearch is produced and hosted by Dustin Domingo and Crystal Tugatti.
0: Editing by Dustin Domingo. If you enjoy Mesearch, make sure to share, subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Also, make sure to check us out at Mesearchpodcast.com and follow us at Mee-search Podcast.
0: We're going to get to the bottom of things. This
1: is Mesearch, folks. Woo-hoo!